Hello and welcome to the Spike podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and with me as ever we have Spike's deputy editor Tom Slater. Hello. And Spike columnist Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show we'll be discussing Megxit, Iran and the Labour leadership. Harry and Meghan have now announced their bid for independence. No one expected the extraordinary statements. They're rather confused and naive. They seem to want to have their cake and eat it. They still want to cling on to the purse strings of the British taxpayer and they still want to have that status that we have given them. The palace is very upset about what's happened. Normally they try and hold everything together. You paper over the cracks. That is not happening now. Prince Harry and Meghan Markle have announced their intention to step back from royal duties and I quote, carve out a progressive new role within the monarchy. This move is unprecedented. What what did you make of it? I thought it was amazing. I mean, it was, you almost couldn't make it up. There's been so much discussion on this podcast as well as elsewhere <laughs> about how that combination of entitled and hectoring Harry and Meghan have been. But the idea that they would basically leave the royal family whilst trying to stay within it, um, mm. in order that they don't have to suffer as much of as they saw at the horrible scrutiny and the pressures of, um, their position is almost effectively to kind of become, you know, UN Instagram influencers almost or yeah. something like that is something that you almost couldn't make up. It's just absolutely fascinating that it's kind of like a collision, it feels like, of kind of celebrity entitlement and old-fashioned kind of royal entitlement insofar as they are quite happy with the position that they have um, by dint of obviously Harry's family lineage. They're quite happy with the platform, but they want none of the things that come along with it, the scrutiny, the duties, all the rest of it. And I think it's fascinating that they want to leave the monarchy, carve out a progressive new role within the institution, as they put it. But at the same time, they want to keep their titles. Mm. Um, They've even trademarked the name Sussex Royal, which is their kind of new venture, it seems like. They want to keep Frogmore Cottage, which as we all know is not a cottage. It's a huge house and it's one that the taxpayer spent something like 2.4 million pounds refurbishing at least could be up to 3 million exactly so and at the same time there's obviously um they've said that they don't want the sovereign grant anymore but that's a tiny proportion of the money they get most of it they get from the duchy of cornwall which again is just you know recycled money via the royals land ownership and holdings etc so it's just a really kind of fascinating snapshot into them as individuals but also the kind of unique sort of very modern but also very old-fashioned phenomenon that is harry and Meghan, which whilst they were presented as being this very kind of new royals, as being people who are kind of challenging the institution, in some respects are very old school because they're, they're like so many monarchs that we've had previously who are quite happy with the platform, quite happy with the prestige, feel they earn it, but don't want to put up with the kind of pesky sides of it, like the scrutiny, etc. So I thought it was a real eye-opener in that respect, as was the reaction to it, which I think was particularly interesting as well. Uh, Ella? Yeah, well, on the reaction to it, one of my favourite tweets about the news came from Bette Midler, um, <laughs> who, who kind of bemoaned the fact that the UK tabloids were having fits that um, Meghan and Harry had taken a step back. She ended it with tough shit, kids, they got away. And it's like this sense that, you know, we're the bad guys and mm. that Harry and Meghan are the these poor people who have had to suffer for years, who have now escaped. All they want is a normal life, or, you know, <laughs> yeah. give them a break. You just think there's such a weird, willful ignorance about what they actually represent. And I mean, putting aside all the very valid points of their ridiculous wealth and their privilege, genuine privilege and arrogance. I mean, the fact is they represent an institution that, that the monarchy, which having been through the last, you know, three to four now years of questioning of the democratic makeup of the UK, of a new 
realm of British politics, all these things, they, I think they themselves can see that actually things are changing mm. and that the monarchy is coming under intense scrutiny, not just because of Prince Andrew, not just because of the series The Crown, which I think has been quite, <laughs> quite actually a good insight into um, that whole shadowy world of the monarchy, but also just because I think they realise that in order to survive, they have to be celebrity. But the question is, you know, being a celebrity and surviving as a celebrity in the end means allowing people into all parts of your life. And so their privilege and their ability to say, actually, no, we're going to only turn on the cameras when we want to shows that this isn't really a step back. This is kind of a lot of nonsense about the idea that they're suddenly going to become, you know, commoners and people have made (laughs) jokes about that. It's not true. I mean, the interesting thing about all of this is, and this isn't just because I'm a great fan of the crown, because I think it's actually very anti-monarchist, but that what that show revealed and what lots of discussions about the monarchy recently have revealed is that once you get rid of the sheen of the divine and that kind of performance of it, the very, you know, the kind of boring, stately, formal version of the monarchy, you find out that they're actually very uninteresting, very boring, very unpleasant people. And that whole kind of the the arrogance of especially Harry and Meghan, I think, has started to, thankfully, turn a few people off um, the monarchy. And I just hope more of them follow suit because let's make them all commoners. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, I suppose it's one of the sad things is that they, they're sort of leaving on their own terms and um, we haven't had the exciting overthrow of the monarchy that we so badly <laughs> mm. deserve. I think what I think what's interesting about Harry and Meghan is that that in in a sense they themselves don't embody anything new. You know, we've had the celebrification of of the monarchy since at least Princess Diana. We've kind of had a quote unquote woke monarchy with you know Prince Charles and his obsession with the environment. But what is certainly new is is the way that people who really should be Republicans and are often self-proclaimed mm. Republicans, the way that they have reacted to this news, as as, as you are hinting at, and. If the case of Harry and Meghan didn't let it on, then there's no getting past it that wokeness now is just a tool for protecting the rich and the powerful because criticism of Meghan Markle is dismissed as racist. I've even heard people try to dismiss criticism of Prince Harry as an attack on the mentally vulnerable because, you know, he obviously opened up about his mental health and said that he was very sad when his when his mother died, which obviously all people would find sad. And so you have this kind of strange culture war over the monarchy where you, the, the kind of liberal people who you would expect to be on the side of, mm. you know, a future republic are now the biggest defenders of um, unearned wealth and privilege. And it's been fascinating the way that they've tried to kind of dress that up um, over the course of the past 24, 48 hours. So you've seen this line of people saying that this is almost a blow to the institution of the monarchy. Oh, yeah. This yeah. is a challenge to um, the monarchy and all of its kind of ridiculous... Uh, archaic kind of pressures and practices and so on, which is completely not true. I mean, what effectively um, Harry and Meghan want to do is to hold on to the part of the monarchy, which is incredibly, you know, negative and old fashioned and kind of feudal. The idea that these people should hang on to their title, which is they've just effectively inherited. They basically, by keeping their titles, they kind of just want to sort of leverage it into um, a new form of status for themselves, kind of join the international aristocracy um, via the old aristocracy, almost, mm. if you see what I mean. But at the same time, 
time not hanging on to any of its allegedly redeeming features. So yeah. the idea, particularly in the post-war period, the idea that the monarchy has a sense of public duty, public service, they have all of these charities which they are patrons of, and that also in a kind of more modern era that they will keep quiet, um, that they will, you know, let's all see the pictures of the kids and they'll smile and wave, but they won't do much more else than that. They won't intervene in politics as Harry and Meghan have in various veiled and not so veiled ways in recent years. So it's not a challenge to um, any of the kind of deeply negative aspects of monarchy. If anything, it's just a kind of trying to shake off what might be seen, and I don't think they are redeeming features, but as some of its kind of positive features, the things that people actually expect in return for the um, ludicrous profile that these people have. And it's just been so fascinating over the course of the last couple of years with the whole Harry and Meghan phenomenon, the kinds of positions that people have taken, you know, effectively backing Harry and Meghan in their war of words against the press, you know, again, kind of effectively signing with inherited privilege against the right of a free media to question them, to criticise them and where appropriate to ridicule them. And the fact that there's so many people who find them themselves on the side of the aristocracy, just because they can kind of justify it because these two have right on opinions, I think has been really revealing. On some level, I think a lot of the kind of liberal love for this couple at least represents the fact that they have no trouble with the idea that there should be this kind of elite layer of society who tell us all what to do. They just mm. want it in a slightly more kind of newfangled version of it, effectively. One of the main discussions is about racism. People not only have said that Megan is treated in a racist way by the press, but now are saying that it was racism that has driven them to this, you know, unprecedented um, decision. Well, I mean, the whole debate centred around whether or not she got an inordinate amount of abuse or scrutiny in the press in comparison to Kate Middleton. I mean, Kate Middleton is a particularly boring individual, so it's quite a (laughs) difficult comparison. Um, And Meghan comes along with a history of someone who was a, you know, a woman in her own right and not just a kind of clothes horse and a baby maker as she's since become um, whilst joining the royal family. As all royal royal women women are expected to do. And it's really, is really faintly ridiculous because, and I've even experienced it where people hint at the idea that you might be a racist because you say, I don't like the royals. I mean, just because this couple supposedly, as people argue, represents a modern Britain in looks, in appearances, doesn't mean that they do in any kind of political or moral sense. And it is absolutely not racist to say that uh, Meghan Markle is completely uninteresting and completely annoying, really (laughs) seriously annoying and hectoring. And since when did everyone forget that Prince Harry dressed up and larked about in a Nazi suit? I mean, these people are not nice. (laughs) That was a better era, if anything. (laughs) (laughs) Bring back Nazi Harry is one headline. And the interesting thing that I've been thinking about is how much actually the this couple really don't like Britain and they don't like British people. They feel like Tom alluded to in the criticism of the press, all the stuff that they come out with is about how it's so difficult for them. They hate being photographed. They hate public appearances, you know, and whether, you know, I'm sure it's very annoying to be a royal at times, but what the royal family used to do was put up this, of course, they all always thought we were all oiks, but they used to put up this pretense of this kind of national pride, a, a belief in Britain, all the kind of pomp of that has sort of been sucked out with the new royals because they want to be woke and because it's not woke to um, fly the flag and do all those kind of things and ha- inhabit that kind of role. So you know, my question is, why do people still like fawning over them. Um, and I think actually the move of this, the Sussex Royals away from the royal family and this very kind of arrogant sense that we'll all still fall in behind them, even when they're not doing any work, won't work. I think that actually people are going to start realising that 
the royals aren't really fit for anything anymore and that they should all hand over the jewels. Storm Frogmore Cottage. (laughs) (laughs) You're listening to the Spiked podcast. Spiked has no subscriptions and no paywalls. All of our content is free. We rely on the generosity of our listeners and readers to keep us going and growing. For those of you who already donate to Spiked, we can't thank you enough. It really means a lot to the team. If you haven't already, then why not consider giving Spiked a donation? You can make a one-off payment or give monthly by going to spiked-online.com. Tensions between Iran and the United States have escalated dramatically recently. Last week, Iranian General Qasem Soleimani was killed by a drone strike on the orders of President Trump. Iran responded by launching ballistic missile strikes against two US air bases in Iraq. Spike columnist Tim Black is joining us down the line for this section. Tim, um, could you tell us a bit about what's gone on in the past few weeks? In some ways, the this latest episode in the US-Iran rivalry uh, stretches back to last summer uh, when you had uh, Iran or rather Iranian proxies seizing US or US allies ships. You had the uh, shooting down of a US drone and you had various, you know, sort of minor skirmishes, usually involving uh, Iranian-backed militias or proxies because it always allows the Iranian regime a little bit of plausible deniability. Uh, And Trump was always flirting, I think, with some form of response, but then he always seemed to withdraw. Then this December, or certainly towards the end of December, uh, there was an attack on the US um, embassy uh, by, again, by a, a Iran-backed militia. I say US embassy, the US embassy in Iraq. And that seemed to be um, the final straw, uh, because within a few days, of course, uh, as you said, Fraser, the uh, US had executed, effectively, assassinated uh, Soleimani in, in Iraq. Trump uh, claimed that this was because that uh, the US had intelligence that Soleimani was planning various attacks on US forces, but then again, Iran had been planning various attacks on uh, US and US allies' forces for the past uh, two decades, so it, it, didn't seem to, it didn't seem to be particularly new intelligence. But anyway, Soleimani's uh, assassinated, and this is what's almost bizarre about the past week, we seem to have gone from being on the brink of World War Three, certainly according to the more excitable uh, members of the Twitterati, to what appears to be a rather anticlimactic return to the status quo. Both sides now, following uh, Iran's missile uh, attack on two US bases, have tried to draw a line under this little conflict, this little minor outbreak of uh, animosity. Trump is now talking about reviving some talks about a, a, a new nuclear deal, urging those signatories to the old one to finally break with it and join with him and strike up a new deal on Iran's plans for nuclear armament. Uh, and Iran itself, the Iranian regime, apart from the Ayatollah, who's still talking about death to the great Satan, apart from the Ayatollah, the Iranian regime itself seems to be saying that this is the uh, end of the matter for the time being. Uh, we want to draw a line on it. Uh, we don't want to escalate things any further. Uh, so we have gone from, as I say, the rather sort of apocalyptic scenario uh, just last Thursday to what seems to be a return to where we were a week ago. So nothing much in some ways has happened or changed, certainly in the short term. Tom, your thoughts? 
Well, I thought what was quite striking about so much of the um, discussion of this was the kind of discussion about why Trump decided to do this. Because as we all know, Trump is a very impulsive character. Um, mm. He is very much in favour of a bit of kind of spectacle on, on the international stage. There's obviously the backdrop of the impeachment and the 2020 race to come and all the rest of it. But I think whilst it's true to say that Trump seemingly has no strategy and is quite unhinged in many respects, one of the things which I think has been unfortunate about the discussion is how much it is focused on the character of Trump exclusively, by which I mean that there has been a body of people in the kind of foreign policy establishment in the US who have been kind of spoiling for hostilities with Iran for a very, very long time. They have this demented obsession with it. And one of those people, of course, is Mike Pompeo, um, Secretary of State, who um, now the reporting seems to suggest was very much instrumental in bringing these this kind of um, escalation to the point now. And these are people who think they have a strategy, who think they have a kind of, you know, guiding philosophy, but again, are absolutely crazy insofar as their kind of desire to move more towards kind of hot conflict, you know, the kind of lack of ability to learn the lessons of the past 10 years, 10, 15 years, just the lack of, you know, recognition that Iraq was pretty disastrous in and of itself. But at the same time, you know, Iran is a much bigger country with a Mm. much stronger military and all the rest of it. The idea that they were even toying with the idea of escalating things to the level that it seemed like they were going to get to and were actually quite happy about getting there, I think was quite striking. And then even Pompeo coming out and almost being a bit annoyed that various um, Western allies, Britain and European powers, etc., just despite not being told that this assassination was taking place while they weren't out cheerleading for it. What's interesting as well is that on the flip side, there's been kind of almost a backlash to it almost too far in the other direction. So mm. all, now this is kind of quoting kind of, you know, slightly ludicrous um, celebrity Twitter characters, but I thought it was so interesting that there was almost this outpouring of almost kind of strange, almost affection for Soleimani among yeah. certain members of the celebrity set, Michael Moore in particular, you know, kind of even suggesting that he had contacted directly the Supreme Leader of Iran in order to kind of calm tensions, sharing um, pictures of the procession of Soleimani's funerals, saying, you know, imagine a general in the US drawing this kind of adulation. It's almost like anti-Trumpism is so extreme that it's kind of bred a level of kind of almost um, Iranian revolutionary filia among certain (laughs) sections of that. Now, those are extreme examples, but I think it's just interesting that on both sides of this um, conflict, on both sides of this um, question, there is a kind of culture war going on, on Mm. the kind of Trump and the neocon side. It's the symbolic importance of Iran because of everything that's happened since 1979. The fact that Trump was talking about hitting 52 sites potentially in Iran to mirror the 52 hostages in the diplomatic crisis um, in the wake of the Iranian revolution. But on the other side, this kind of anti-Trumpism, which is so extreme, it didn't only mean that the catastrophism in the wake of this assassination was so much bigger, but even at the fringes, you saw this kind of strange, almost kind of tears for Soleimani taking place, despite the fact he was um, an incredibly nefarious character. Ella? Yeah, I was thinking about two things. The first was that while there has, you know, the anti-Trumpism stuff has led to some weird moralising, not just among celebrities, but also among some politicians. But at the same time, I think one thing that sort of hit home is, and Tim, you mentioned this in your column last week, is the sort of dangerous eroticism of Trump at times, because all of this tension on the international stage being exacerbated by unprecedented tweets and actions, um, and also more widely, you know, the the whole debacle with the draft letter um, that went out Mm. um, saying that the Americans were going to pull out, but then that was contradicted and it wasn't signed, or maybe it was signed. And all of that showed that actually, even more worryingly, it's not just Trump, it's Trump's administration that doesn't seem to be even organised enough to know, you know, for the left hand to know what the right's doing. So I think that sort of put a more serious tone on all of this 
for me, where you think <laughs> this this is quite worrying, um, that even if, as Tim says, it has gone back to the kind of strange stalemate that it's been at for a long time, these continuing bubblings of the potential of conflict um, isn't good. And I think that it's more reason for people in America who oppose Trump to get their act together and put up a decent political opposition to him. Then the second thing I was thinking about in, you know, in relation to the response to all of this, there's been this sense of, you know, pressure, as there always is, pressure on Western leaders to come out and say, what are we going to do about this? And it made me think back to April 2018, when Trump announced those airstrikes in um, in Duma in Syria, and everyone kind of, not everyone, but there was sort of widespread praise for his intervention there. Um, it was seen to be the right thing to do. Uh, and now he intervenes in the Middle East again now, and it's very wrong, and it's very evil. And, you know, the overall message is that the West should, morally should have a right to meddle in the Middle East. Um, and as we've written lots of times, Spike, no, actually it doesn't. Um, and I think the ongoing question now is not just that things manage to be stable, but that the West should start to retreat and get out of the Middle East because it has been, its presence there has been what's caused much of this mess in the first place. Yeah. And I wanted to also speak a bit about Iran's presence in, in the region, because obviously the Soleimani killing took place in Iraq. We've said many times that America shouldn't be in Iraq, but should uh, Iran be there either? I mean, Tim, can you talk a bit about that? And obviously, even towards the end of last year, we were seeing a lot of Iraqi resistance to um, Iranian occupation. Iran has such a presence in Iraq today, largely because of the U.S.'s presence in Iraq, because of the U.S.'s invasion of Iraq in 2003, and the opportunities uh, that arose following that invasion and the kind of collapse of the Iraqi state, uh, the opportunities that arose for the uh, Iranians to move in through uh, proxy forces. So you saw that in the you know, mid to late 2000s, um, and Soleimani was a prime orchestrator of this. You saw a kind of set of sheer militias resisting and targeting U.S. troops. Uh, and, you know, there was a massive, well, it was at that point you had such a lot of uh, U.S. soldiers in Iraq. And this has actually been the, Iran's policy, I think, for the past 15 or so years, not just in Iraq, of course, but also in Syria, uh, in Yemen as well. Um, it's, it's to exploit the unrest and the, uh, the instability uh, that has largely been caused in these areas by a mixture of um, civil conflict and Western intervention. We've seen that most explosively, I think, in Syria. Uh, we've seen that to an extent again in Yemen. Uh, so Iran has moved into these places and expanded and entrenched its influence and its power. Um, but as I say, it's largely in a, as a response um, to the US's own presence and almost reluctant entrenchment in, 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 in these regions. Um, and I think the, one of the most depressing aspects of this seemingly interminable to and fro between the US and its allies in the Middle East and the Iran and its allies in the Middle East is that this is that the it doesn't seem to be able to, to go anywhere. I, that's what's almost so bewildering about the execution of uh, Soleimani, is that it doesn't seem to serve any strategic purpose. It just seems to be an almost impetuous act. It, you know, it has a certain PR purpose because Soleimani was kind of held up as this shadowy Machiavellian mastermind behind all that's going on in the Middle East. And of course, he's, he's not. He's largely created 
uh, as such by a mixture of the Western media and Iran wanting to uh, create this rather mythical figure. So, you know, the US execute him, but it doesn't actually serve any larger kind of strategic purpose. It doesn't seem to resolve any of those kind of conflicts. Um, and in actual fact, I think it's probably going to make these conflicts far worse. I think it will entrench Iran in Iraq. Uh, and it also, ironically enough, it also uh, consolidates and re-legitimizes the Ayatollah's regime in Iran itself, which had been uh, suffering from a, you know, a great deal of civil unrest itself. You know, we had uh, mass protests in Iran back in the autumn. Uh, we don't know too much about them because, of course, the Iranian state, such as its uh, dictatorial kindness, imposed an internet blackout. But we are aware that there were hundreds killed and thousands arrested. So that shows the extent to which the Iranian regime in Iran itself was under severe pressure and revealing itself to the Iranian people as being, uh, as being without legitimacy, as being only able to sustain its rule through sheer force and might. But the US's intervention has in some ways almost managed to provide the Iranian regime with that familiar fig leaf of legitimacy, which comes from, of course, opposing America, opposing US imperialism and so on. Uh, so in, in some ways, the US's intervention has actually just firmed up Iran's influence, both in its near neighbours and the Iranian regime's um, uh, legitimacy within Iran itself. You're listening to The Spiked Podcast. If you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher and more. And if your provider allows you to, why not give us a rating and a review while you're there? It really helps new listeners find the show. The race to become the next leader of the Labour Party has officially started. Shadow Brexit Secretary Keir Starmer has a comfortable lead in the first YouGov poll of Labour members. He's also secured the backing of enough MPs to get on the ballot paper, as well as the support of Unison, the UK's largest trade union. Behind him is Rebecca Long-Bailey, the left-wing or continuity Corbyn candidate. Ella, what struck you so far about this uh, leadership race? Well, mainly what struck me is that Nothing struck me. It's actually been incredibly dull so far. There's been no scandals, really. Uh, there's been yeah, everyone who you might have expected to have been announced has been announced. And as expected, Keir Starmer's in the lead. I mean, if you wanted to pull out some interesting things, it has been interesting that Keir Starmer hasn't gone for being the Remain candidate. Because um, certainly lots of people I know who are Remain supporters and Labour supporters were sort of hoping that he would fill that role, that he would maintain, uh, it, even if he didn't come out explicitly say it, he would be that very pro-Europe, looking to the future of how we could possibly get back into membership sort of thing. And I think, you know, someone's had a word in his ear and said, you can't do that. And so he's, it's quite unbelievably, he's not that convincing when he talks about it, has decided not to go for that. And so that kind of throws it opens slightly more because then you have people vying for that position. You had the weird situation uh, over the 
last weekend on the Andrew Marr show where Jess Phillips sort of said that she was still dedicated to remaining, but it kind of was overspun. Emily Thornbury is sort of trying not to make a hash out of the fact that she's spent the last few months appearing with EU necklaces um, <laughs> and is sort of trying to half-heartedly convince people that she'd be workable around Brexit. But the real thing that struck me is that all of them are still singing from the same hymn sheet. They all believe, it's very interesting, they all believe that actually that the policy in itself wasn't flawed in the last election, that it wasn't really about us, it was about how we appeared. And the interesting thing is that the Labour Party has for a long time been really obsessed with comms and messaging and image and how you can package this thing up, the Labour Party, and neatly shove it down voters' throats. Yeah, probably the most clear encapsulation of that was Rebecca Long-Bailey, who, when pushed um, to rate Jeremy Corbyn's leadership of the Labour Party, said <laughs> that it was 10 out of 10. And, you know, her opening pitch for the leadership, she said that there was no problem with any of the policies, that they were all good. And the problem was that some of them, like her favourite, the Green New Deal, was just tragically undersold. So it's quite amazing, actually, that after this historic defeat, you have someone like Long-Bailey saying... We did nothing wrong. In a way, the voters got it wrong, you know, because they just didn't see us properly. They didn't understand all the great things that we were offering. And even Keir Starmer, who you'd expect to be more of a kind of moderate figure, certainly from that wing of the party, is himself saying we can't abandon the radicalism of the last five years. Now, that might just be a pitch to the sort of Corbynite membership. We'll see how much that stays if he becomes leader. But it is it, it is telling that there is almost no un, no willingness to criticise the past, you know, f- five years of Labour leadership and, and, and what that has resulted in. Mm. I think part of that, as you say, is obviously aimed at trying to keep the membership on board. It is the selector who are going to decide who Labour put forward eventually. Um, but I think it also does speak to the fact that the, the leadership candidates such as they are are really bereft of ideas. Mm. You know, you have, as you say, kind of the Keir Starmer and Rebecca Long-Bailey, who I are kind of obviously being contrasted because they're kind of first and second by anyone's estimation as far as how they're getting on the campaign so far. But there, are, as you said, there are so many similarities. Neither of them want to really distance themselves. With Keir Starmer, it's just basically trying to put a more credible, in inverted commas, kind of face to the Corbyn project, not to move away from any of its quote-unquote radicalism. That crisis of ideas, I think, reached its nadir with someone like Jess Phillips, who has mm. never advocated for any policy, has been in the media spotlight for the past five years, largely talking about herself while claiming to tell it like it is, um, and really came undone in the Mar show last week, when the only really kind of notable thing she said on policy was, as Ella was saying, that she might advocate rejoining the European Union, but quickly backtracked on it the next <laughs> day, when people pointed out what a batshit crazy thing that would be to do at this point in time. But I think it just speaks to the, the dearth of ideas at this point, the dearth of talent to be honest. It's not as yeah. if this is the most important thing, but at the same time, the fact that none of these people are particularly significant figures, I think that it kind of was played up to almost comic extent with the will he, won't he candidacy of Barry Gardner this week. You know, <laughs> in a way, why not? The rest of the competition is so terrible. But one thing I think is also quite interesting to note, given the success of Keir Starmer, given the fact that he does seem to be able to reach into kind of soft Corbynite support, both in the PLP, um, also in Unison. Unison are more of a kind of bellwether union. They're not as left-wing as you 
unite, but at mm. the same time, they did back Corbyn last time around in the leadership elections. And also the question of the membership, given the um, YouGov poll, it does seem like people will vote for him, despite the fact that the membership was obviously very passionately in favour of Corbyn. I think also speaks to the fact, which is not really understood enough, which is that the kind of Corbynism moment was not as kind of ideological, if you will, as yeah. it was so often presented, that so many of these Labour members, whilst there were a layer of them, particularly, I would imagine, the people who were formerly in the party then rejoined to support Corbyn, more of the kind of old Labour left, very much kind of believed in that kind of state, socialist, social democratic programme, um, and we're very happy to see it. But it just tapped into a far more fluid sense of radicalism, but just as a kind of identity, just as yeah. something kind of watery, as something that you just want to be, quote unquote, on the right side of history. So the ease with which Keir Starmer, who is by all accounts a far more moderate, if we are going to use those f- words, figure, has been able to so easily kind of appropriate the Corbynite agenda, I think speaks to how the, the kind of lack of ideological firmness, if you like, of a lot of people in the membership, but also the programme itself. You know, it, wasn't, it was never as radical as many people like to make out it was, which is why it's so easy for someone like Starmer to come along and kind of pick it up if you will yeah that's right and i think one of, you know one of the great myths of the last five years is this sort of hard left takeover mm. of, of the labor party i mean not only was that obviously not true but based on the kind of policies that they were coming out with which were you know not we're not taking us in any direction that's so different from other european countries but also in the fact that internally there were you know many struggles over questions about certain candidates trying to deselect um mps mm. replace them with more left wing ones they didn't they didn't succeed on a single front Never happened. Yeah. because many of the people that voted for corbyn especially the first time were what you know people called those three pounders the people who joined the labor party for three or registered as supporters of the Labour Party in order to vote in the leadership election. And and the commitment to the radical Corbyn project was only ever kind of skin deep. Yes, they'd come out for um, general elections. Yes, they'd, you know, vote for him in leadership elections. But they weren't, you know, knocking on doors in local council elections or, you know, some of the other quite significant um, events in the party. They probably weren't going to meetings every week or anything like that. So, as you say, the commitment to... Corbynism was always, in, in a sense, exaggerated. Hmm. I think part of the problem that most of the leadership hopefuls are facing with, and I mean the Labour Party as a whole, is that it hasn't yet been able to face up to the actual reason why it lost um, the last election. And that's that the party has changed. It isn't anymore about, or in any of its policies really, in any meaningful sense, or any of the rhetoric it espouses geared towards the voters in the former Red Wall. Mm -hmm. It has become a youthful, middle-class, urban party. Um, And in many ways, even if, you know, geographically it might be slightly more complex than that, that its policies, the kind of the, the years now of identity politics focus the you know even the fact that they're still now talking about the fact that oh the you know leadership has to be a woman i mean (laughs) one thing it doesn't have to be is a woman there's some seriously other issues that you have to um, get in place there the big b word being one of them before you deal with all of that i mean this has been building for a very long time disquiet with the labor party has been happening for decades it's been turning away from what people call its roots for a long time i mean i question the idea that it actually ever really had roots um, in a kind of working class movement, but it really isn't that party anymore. And so if it's going to succeed, it has to do this quite difficult thing, which is openly admit the thing that no member of the 
quote unquote metropolitan elite wants to do and admit that it is a party for the metropolitan elite, admit that it's a party for the middle class, admit actually, which is the truth, that all of them hate Brexit, aren't, you know, it doesn't matter how much Keir Starmer grits his teeth and says, mm-hmm. oh, I don't, I'm not going to talk about that anymore. He does want to talk about it. They are going to talk about it in 2024. So embrace it, become that party, and then maybe you'll get some electoral success. Good luck to you but I won't be voting for it. (laughs) But this continual pretense is where it's going to come unstuck. And if they do implement even Rebecca Long-Bailey and her 10 out of 10 for Corbyn, it's just, it's just wasting time staying off the execution. It has to die off at some point. (laughs) Unfortunately, I think lots of us thought that, and I certainly thought that this election result would force it into such crisis that it would either split or go down the drain it looks like we might be have the Labour Party around for slightly a bit longer, but I don't think it has much of a future. Mm. I think it's interesting as well the fact that there is this kind of consensus forming about Keir Starmer's the person who can bring it back to credibility. Keir Starmer's the only person who's got a shot at actually making it a viable electoral force again. But again, it's that refusal to recognise the scale of the defeat. You know, mm. a lot of people obviously compared the catastrophic result in the last election to 1983 and Michael Foote and the longest suicide note in history. But the thing about that is when in that disastrous result in 1983, still held on to the so-called Red Wall. They had mm. Scotland, which are these two kind of big, you know, kind of bulwarks of um, Labour support um, from which they can then reach out to kind of other voters into marginal seats, etc., to try and cobble together a majority. They've lost that now. Mm. And the idea that Keir Starmer can appeal to anyone other than really maybe kind of Remainers who were so repulsed by Jeremy Corbyn, kind of middle-class Remainer types who might have tactically voted for Tories or stayed home or whatever. He can reach out to those people, but he's not the man that Wrexham is waiting for. That's absolutely clear. And it's just, no one wants to make predictions about how things are going to go for from here. But it's quite clear that Labour, if it is to be viable at all, and I don't think it has a right to, frankly, at this point, given the stuff it's pulled, particularly over the last um, three years, it's going to be a very long walk back. And any of the contenders who we're looking at at the moment, not just because of how unimpressive they are, you know, at best, they're going to be a part of that process. They're certainly not going to be the ones who are going to deliver it. You've been listening to the Spiked podcast. For more Spiked content, don't forget to keep visiting us at spiked-online.com where you can also make a donation or treat yourself to something from our shop.